Well, on the second Sunday of Advent, we approach the texts that are before us, and as already we have heard, our epistle reading was from Philippians 1. Our uh, Old Testament reading was Malachi 3. The gospel lesson was from Luke 3, and the psalm lesson uh, is our text today, which is not a psalm. It is a psalm, it's just not in the book of Psalms. And it's a, it's a hymn, uh, and that is the song of Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. <clears throat> and that's the text that we'll be looking at today. With those other texts, the beautiful thing about the lectionary when it's done well, and most times it is, though sometimes they cut a text a little short here and there, but the beautiful thing about the lectionary is that it does. These texts are meant to be hanging around each other so we can hear resonances between them. So as I read our text this morning on page 904 uh, from Luke 1, I'll hear it, but hear it in light of those other texts as well. Now his father Zecharias was filled, this is John the Baptist's father, of course. Uh, now his father Zecharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Well, here we have the song, the prophecy, the um, inspired prophecy. Notice that even as Zechariah sings this song, um, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. So here we have Zechariah who uh, is, is celebrating the birth of his son. And yet, as he celebrates it and sings, he's filled with the Spirit and gives us this amazing hymn or psalm of prophecy regarding and that's that's helping us understand what exactly is taking place here so who is Zechariah let's just think about that now I titled the sermon I took it from that line at the end is as Zechariah turns and speaks to his son you're going to be the prophet of the highest so this this psalm if you will is kind of split in two in the in the first half we have Zechariah celebrating who Jesus is and, and then in the second half, he turns and rejoices in his son. I mean, it's the birth of his son that he's celebrating. But even for Zacharias, he sees in the birth of his son the good news of Jesus Christ. It's Zacharias's, you know, birth that causes him to launch into this great praise about what God is doing in Jesus. Though he comes back to his son, and you, son, are going to be the prophet of the highest, and here's what you're going to get to declare, and it's back to Jesus. We go. 
So this song and psalm is a praise for what God is doing in Jesus, as is evidenced by the birth of Zechariah's son, John. Now, Zechariah is a, a, an interesting bloke. We have, to, we have to think about him for a second because this explosion of praise that takes place from Zechariah, you might remember, comes after a long period of, of, of muteness. Right, he was silenced by the Lord because while he was in the temple, uh, Zechariah is a priest, and while he was in the temple, the angel came to him and told him that indeed his wife Elizabeth was going to give birth to a child, and that this child was going to be the forerunner, that promised forerunner uh, that Malachi uh, speaks of, and that we hear about in Isaiah and so forth. But but Malachi uh, gives us that in in the text we looked at this morning. And you might remember Zechariah's response. This can't be. <laughs> now, now listen, when an angel visits you, this is just a little pastoral tip for you all. Uh, when, when, an, when an angel visits you, okay, and tells you something's going to happen, little advice, don't say that can't happen, okay? The, the fact that the angel's appearing to you is a good sign that it probably can happen. And so Zechariah's, Zechariah's makes the terrible mistake of saying, well, that can't be, okay? She's old and she's she's barren. So that's it's not going to happen. We've been trying for years, okay? I, you, the, I appreciate the, the idea, but it's not going to happen. We've been trying for such a long time. And the angel says, okay, fine. You're not going to speak. <laughs> you're, you're done um, until, until the time comes when you see it fulfilled. Interesting that Mary, when Mary is, the angel comes to Mary, same angel comes to Mary. And tells Mary this is going to happen. And she doesn't say it quite that way, but she actually asked too, well, that's not possible. I've never been with a man. How, how is this going to happen? And the angel does not make Mary a mute. Interesting. Of course, she's probably like a 14-year-old girl, right? She's a young, uh, a very young girl. And she seems to be asking an innocent question. Zacharias is not a 14-year-old girl, if that's how old Mary is, however. Don't be distracted by the age. I'm not sure how old you are. Zechariah is not a young girl. He's a priest. He's a man who should know the stories. Uh, do you not know any of the Old Testament stories, uh, Zechariah, of barren women who have been visited by the Lord, and the Lord said, you're going to have a child, and lo and behold, there was a child. Do you not know any of those stories? So for Zechariah to say, well, that can't happen. It's like, it's a, it's it's... It's scary to me because it's a sign of a guy who knows his stuff and goes through the motions every day. But then when he's confronted with the moment that requires faith, is like, well, no, nah, it's not. I know these stories. Okay, but come on. Not, not to me. It's not going to happen. It's, it's a little warning to me as a professional pastor, but, but also to you. you know, we know these things and they can become folklore, you know, and maybe that's what it had become for Zechariah as all of a sudden he's confronted with it. And he says, that that can't happen. So Zechariah is muted. He can't talk to anyone. And when he sees now the birth of his child, the Lord loosens his lips and what comes gushing out of him? Praise. But not just praise. Like deep praise. This is a guy who has had time to think because he's been unable to talk. And for this time, you can tell that by the Holy Spirit, he has been doing some deep thinking. 
where now he's looking back on the stories that perhaps he believed, but folklorishly believed. And now he is experiencing in such a powerful way in his own life. And he's having to rethink. He's going back into the Old Testament and he's thinking now, if this is true, if what is happening in the womb of my wife, that this child is in fact the messenger that was promised there in Malachi 3. What does this mean? And when he's finally able to speak, out comes gushing from now a very deep well of praise comes gushing a river of Holy Spirit-inspired praise. And I want to think about this in these two sections. I want to start first in that top part of the, so let's say 68 through 75 of this psalm, because here's where you see Zechariah now reaching back, looking at the moment and reading it in light of all the stories he knows so well, the scriptures which he knows so well, we can hear the Psalms in these, the very Psalms that we've been reading. Uh, in some ways, this sounds like those Psalms. He has the Psalms deep within him, but he has his story of redemption deep in him. And he goes back and he can see this moment in light of God's covenantal promises. And he particularly draws back to two covenantal moments, the covenant with David and then back beyond that, all the way back to the covenant of that God made with Abraham. But frankly, he even goes back before that. Verse 68, blessed is the God of Israel, for he has, notice he, he's now, he, there's no, there's no, oh, this can't happen. Now he's speaking of the future as if it's in the past. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Well, that hasn't happened yet. All right, Jesus hasn't even been born yet. But for him, it's as good as done. The fact that this has happened, it is this prophetic past tense. It's like, it's, in my mind, it's already done. I, with what I see here, He's already done it. He has redeemed. Blessed be the God of our of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation. You'll remember this imagery of the horn from our study in Revelation. The horn is a symbol of power and authority, right? That's why the lamb, Jesus, in Revelation 5, when he's depicted as a lamb, has seven horns. It's not because he's just a really weird lamb. It's because it's a vision of a symbolic lamb. He's a lamb. He comes as a baby, as a child. He comes as a son of a Jewish carpenter. He comes as a traveling rabbi who doesn't have a place to lay his head. He looks like a lamb. Oh, but make no mistake. He's a horn of salvation for his people. In fact, he's a lamb with seven horns. Perfect and complete authority and power. And Zechariah sees this. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house, and here's where now this linking back, this isn't just, oh, a, a, a something that just pops out of nowhere for Zechariah. Oh, this is interesting. No, this is from the house of David. He looks at this child and he's linking it back to God's covenantal promises to David. And, and we should remember, if we weren't using tying so tightly to the lectionary text, perhaps we could have chosen for our Old Testament reading today, 2 Samuel 7. 
2 Samuel 7 is where God promised to build a house for David. You might remember in that text that David, in a time of peace within the kingdom, things were feeling pretty good. David was kind of, David was at, at, at a place of rest and a, a pinnacle of the kingdom, looks and sees this beautiful palace that he's in, and yet sees that the Lord is still dwelling in the tabernacle. The, the Ark of the Covenant was still in the tent. And that had been the tent since the time of the Exodus. And so still in the tent, probably a little ragged by now. And here's David living in this majestic palace. And he thinks this isn't right. Calls Nathan, says, Nathan, I have an idea. I want to build the Lord a house. If I, if I had the king live in this house, come on, I, I, it's not right. It's something, uh, you know, disproportional here. I want to build a house for the Lord. And Nathan thinks that's a great idea. Go ahead and do it. But that evening, the Lord grabs Nathan and says, hey, wait a second. You didn't consult me on this. Uh, did I tell you I want a house? Uh, go back and tell David, did I ask you for a house? I did not ask you for a house. And in fact, you are not going to build me a house. But I'll tell you this, David, I'm going to build you a house. You're not going to build me a house. I'm actually going to build you a house. Now, David might be thinking, well, I, I live in a pretty beautiful house. But that's not the kind of house the Lord is speaking of. The Lord is talking about a, a, a house like the, a royal house, right? Like the house of Hanover, right? That, 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 that kind of thing, the house of David. I'm going to build you, David, a kingdom. I am going to build you a name. I am going to build you a lineage. I'm going to build you a kingdom, a dynasty. And it's going to last forever. And I'm going to give you a son. And your son is going to be my son. And he will build me a house. It's an amazing, wonderful, beautiful prophecy of this eternal kingdom that's going to be established and is going to come through the son of David. And that son's going to build him a house. Now, we know that instantly after, well, not instantly, but you know, shortly after that, David dies and David's son Solomon comes. And what does he do? He builds a house for the Lord, the majestic, beautiful temple of Solomon. It was, it was wonderful. And he, he builds a house for the Lord. And the Lord, in giving him a son who reigns, is building a house for David. The only problem is that house does not last forever. Neither of them. Solomon completely ruins the kingdom so that after him it rips in two and you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom and then they both eventually collapse so there's no kingdom anymore. And the Babylonians come in and they dismantle the house that he built for the Lord. They completely tear that stone upon stone, gone. And so the promises then given to David, did the Lord not keep his promises? Well, Zechariah sees in this child and in his cousin Jesus that God is in fact keeping his promise to David in a way that perhaps not even David could ever have imagined. That here is the one who is from the house of David, who is the son of God, not only in that all kings were called sons of God, and they were with that kind of small s way, Right, because the son of David will be my son. That's what God said to David. But here's the one who's the son of God in a whole new way. He is literally the son of God and representationally the son of God as the king. And here is the one Zechariah sees who is the horn of salvation who is going to come and to fulfill the promises that God made 
to David. And we know, in fact, he's going to build his father a house. Right? He's building a house. We don't have time to dive too deeply into this, but I just direct your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2 when Peter says, this is what the Lord is doing, and you all are living stones being built into a holy habitation, a holy house, right? Jesus comes and he builds his father house. I will give you a son, David, and he will build me a house. And the Lord Jesus has come and he is building a kingdom for the father and he is building a house, a temple for his father. So Zacharias, in this time of meditation and time of muteness, looks back and he can see and he's interpreting now this moment in light of what he saw and he knew knew about David. But notice that he goes well back beyond that. And he raised up for us a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. This this isn't something that just sprung up with David. He's saying since the beginning of time, this was the promise. And is that not true? If I ask you, where is the first promise of God for the salvation of his people? The answer would be in the book of Genesis, right there in the Garden of Eden, right after the fall of Adam and before they are expelled from the garden, right there, if you will, at the beginning of time, the Lord came and spoke his prophecy of promise to his people. And I will put enmity between you, Satan, and between the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he, that is the seed of the woman, will crush your head and you, Satan, will bruise his heel. Right there in that promise, right from the beginning of time, is contained the entire scriptures in seed form. The rest of the scriptures is just the unfolding of that first promise in Genesis 3. And Zechariah, I think, sees it. When is there a time in the scriptures, Zechariah is saying, in which this day was not foretold? This is what the entire scriptures were about. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his woman, born, uh, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Right? He sent forth his son in the fullness of time. That is, all the prophecies of the Old Testament have been building to this climactic moment. Zechariah sees it. I see what you're doing, Lord, because I know the story of David. I see what you're doing, Lord, because I've been listening to your prophets who have been since the world began, because even they have told us that we should be saved from our enemies and from all the hand of all who hate us. That's, that's Genesis 3.15. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And then he sees it backing up now into Abraham and to perform. Here's what what the prophets have been telling us and here's what Zechariah is saying, I see happening before me to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember, we've spent a lot of time in the past couple weeks thinking about that, the remembrance of God. Here's, I see now, Lord, you have remembered and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham So again, Zacharias is just, all this Old Testament stuff is bubbling up in him. And he sees in this moment a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham 2,000 years earlier. Lord, you promised to Abraham to give him a seed. 
an offspring who would be a blessing to him, who through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, who would form a people that outnumber the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. You promise to be to bless all those who bless him and to curse all those who curse him, a continuation of that Genesis 3.15 promise of crushing the head and bruising the heel. I'm going to defend you from your enemies. Those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. These are the promises that you made to our father Abraham. And maybe throughout moments in the Old Testament, you would have thought, I wonder if God forgot. It's been 2,000 years. Has he forgotten? And here Zechariah sees in the birth of his son, foretelling the birth of Jesus, you have not forgotten. You have remembered your covenant promises and you are going to deliver us. You've remembered your holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And if I asked you, if I asked you, if we were in Sunday school and I asked you, even that, those two verses, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. If I said, what echo of the Old Testament do you hear there? Perhaps you would say, I hear an echo of the Exodus. Why did God deliver Israel out of Egypt? So here I'm thinking of the Mosaic Covenant. Why did God deliver Israel out of Egypt? Just so they could be free? That's not what he said. Let my people go so that what? They can worship me on this holy mountain. I have delivered you from bondage to Pharaoh that you might serve me, the one true living God. And even here, you could again, just hear the saturation of, of Zechariah's praise with Old Testament theology. He sees what's happening before him as an exodus, right? That's why all the way back up in verse 68, blessed is the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. Redeeming is buying back language, rescuing. He, he sees what's happening before him as a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He, he sees what's happening before him as a fulfillment of the promises God made to Abraham. He sees what's happening before him as the beginning of a new exodus in which we're being freed from our enemies so that we can serve him and worship him in holiness and righteousness. He sees what's happening before him as a fulfillment of God's promise to David. A new kingdom is being established and a horn, seven horns of salvation are being raised up for the deliverance of his people, all of this he sees. This is a man who has eaten, slept, and drank the Old Testament. His whole life, he's a priest. But I'm going to bet you he has done it intently over the past couple of months. And we ought to too. Is that what you see? Is that what you see with this baby in a manger that we're about to celebrate in a couple weeks? Do you see him through Old Testament lenses? I mean, we've got the, the majority of your Bible is Old Testament. Do, do you read it so that we can see who Jesus is better? Because that's what Zacharias has done. It's all he had. But it was sufficient to help him see now, given the work of the Holy Spirit, which you have, to see Jesus more clearly. What we are about to celebrate in a couple weeks is the fulfillment of his long foretold promises.
and then just speaking about what he is going to do going forward. We get that through now uh, Zechariah's words almost to his his baby son. And you, child. So here he's just been just waxing eloquent on, 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 uh, on the goodness of God's faithfulness. Now he turns to his son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. That is, you're going to be the forerunner. You're going to be the one going, hear ye, hear ye. You're going to be the one drawing attention and telling people, hey, get prepared. You're the one who's going to be telling people, hey, flatten the hills, raise the valleys, straighten the crooked ways because the glory of the Lord is about to come. That's your task. You are, that is to say, John the Baptist is the last one receiving the baton in the relay race of prophets. From Genesis 3.15, it has been handed off, handed off, handed off, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, and John the Baptist is the last one to get it, and now he is running into the stadium, right, in that Olympic torch-bearing thing. He's the last guy running in going, hey, everybody, get ready for what's about to come. And you heard that in the Luke 3 text this morning. John the Baptist is showing up baptizing with a baptism of repentance. Clean your hearts out. Prepare him room. Straighten the crooked ways. Right? In Malachi 3, when the forerunner comes, remember he says, I'm sending my messenger and he's going to come prepare the way. But who's going to be prepared for the coming of the Lord? Because when he comes... He's coming like fire. When he comes, he's coming like the fuller soap. Are you prepared? Because that which is not precious metals is going to get burned up. But that which is precious metal is going to be refined. Are you prepared? Have you gotten rid of all the stubble? That's what John the Baptist is doing. Repent, repent, prepare the way of the Lord. And then you heard those words in Malachi, like, hey, you all, you're blind to your own sin because I'm telling you, you've robbed me. And you say, how have we robbed you? Well, this is how you robbed me. And you have complained against me. And you say, how have we complained against you? This is how you complained against me. And you hear it also in John the Baptist in that Luke 3 passage. Because John the Baptist is out there baptizing and here come these brood of vipers, these Pharisees out there. And he's like, what are you doing here? What are you doing? Who told you to come out here and to repent? Are you prepared? Repent, for I'm telling you, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. The winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's going to sift out the grain from the the chaff, and the chaff will be burned with an unquenchable fire. John, that's what you're going to do. You're running that last leg of preparation. But what's trailing behind him? And here we will conclude with this beautiful summary of what John is ushering in by ushering in the king of glory. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, repent, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of God. Boy, it sounds like pretty scary stuff. Hey, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. The winnowing fork is in his hand. You know, very strong images of judgment. But that, that's, that is a message of preparation, but that's not, the, that's not the final message. What John is ushering in by ushering in the king of glory is a message of forgiveness of sin. That's why you ought to repent. You can't clean yourself up enough for the king of glory. Who can be prepared for the coming of the day of the Lord, Malachi, or the Lord as in Malachi? No one. So repent, 
and find in him rich, tender mercy, the forgiveness of sins. So the first thing that he's ushering in is forgiveness. The second thing he's ushering in, verse 79, is hope. For people who live in darkness, in which the heaviness and the ugliness of darkness shrouds us, well, John is about to turn the lights on, right? John is about to come in with that little torch running into the dark stadium. John is bringing in the light. Of course, Jesus is the light of the world, but he's, John is ushering him in through the tender mercies of God, verse 78, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness under the shadow of death. Here is a hopeless, a stadium filled with hopeless people sitting in the dark just waiting for the axe to fall. The sword of Damocles hanging over your head, right? Walking through the valley of the shadow of death, just nothing but living under the shadow of death. And into that darkness comes a ray, a beam of light. Like the light beginning to break just over the horizon. It hasn't come yet, but you, you see the first shoots of daylight coming in dawn. And John is declaring that, and that's what we're going to see in Christ. Christ is the day spring from on high because he's the the first rays of sunlight that, you know what, death will not have the victory. That the curse will not abide. It will not remain forever. Darkness will not remain. But the light will cast it out. And John is the, the, the forerunner of this. And, of course, Jesus Christ brings it. He brings forgiveness and he brings hope, and then finally he brings uh, guidance. He brings peace. This light not only gives you hope, but it lets you see where the heck you're going. Well, now you can actually be guided toward goodness, toward truth, toward Christ, toward life. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to give our feet, or to, excuse me, to guide our feet in the way of peace. We can see where we're going now. The word of God is a lamp unto our feet, and Jesus Christ is the word of God. And when he comes, the light comes. And when the light comes, you can now see where you're going. You can discern things. All these problems and issues, real concerns and burdens that we mentioned at the beginning of the service for which we're praying as a church community, you now see. You have the light you know how they need to be handled. You know what to do with them. You're not sitting in that dark stadium under the shadow of death anymore. You live in the light of the day spring from on high. You know the forgiveness of God. You know the hope of God. And you have the wisdom of God for you know the way of peace. This is what John is ushering in. And this is what we have in Christ. That's why John is the prophet of the highest. And Zechariah who was silent for so long, is pleased to speak praise to the God of the Scriptures because he knows what the birth of John the Baptist means, so much so that he can put all these things in the past tense. They're as good as done. And brothers and sisters, you and I have seen them fulfilled in Christ. How much more certain can we be to know that he will one day put it all to rest? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... John the Baptist, we thank you for Zacharias and for his 
inspired psalm of praise and prophecy. Oh, Father, so fill our hearts with your word that when we look at Christ, even in the celebration of Christmas, Father, we see in him the rich fulfillment of all the pages of the Old Testament, all the way back into Genesis, all fulfilled in the fullness of time through the gift of your Son. And so, Father, help us then to live in light of what Christ has brought, for he has brought forgiveness and tender mercy. He has brought light to our darkness, and he has brought wisdom to our foolishness, peace to our uncertainty. Establish our hearts in these things, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we're partaking of the Lord's